we're, we're coming to the end of ooh, quite a few weeks, months of uh, looking at 1 Corinthians. Uh, I've been reading 1 Corinthians on and off for quite a while now, um, with little breaks here and there along the way. And uh, we're in chapter 16 today. Just going to read a few verses, but I want to re- read just the verse at the end of chapter 50, uh, 15, which is the, the bridge to this passage. Um, and uh, yeah, so let me read from verse 15, which will not appear, verse 58 of chapter 15, which will not appear on the screen. And we're just going to read four verses from chapter 16. Last week and the week before, the passages were really quite long, so this week it's, it's, it's shorter. Um, so, verse 58 of chapter 15. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every month, of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. Amen. Now, uh, not next Sunday or the Sunday after, but there's another two Sundays in August. We're just going to finish off. We might not need two Sundays. We might just have one. Uh, We'll finish off. And I could have finished the whole of chapter 16 today uh, and just kind of bounced through it fairly quickly. But I wanted to take a little bit of time to think with you about this passage. Um, And probably already you're going, oh, no, (laughs) it's all about money, no. Um, It's not actually all about money. It looks like it's all about money, but it's actually about a lot more uh, than that. But for those of you that haven't journeyed with us through Corinthians, let me just do my brief whistle-stop introduction to the letters to Corinthians. Uh, First Corinthians is probably Second Corinthians, and Second Corinthians is probably Four Corinthians, um, because there's two other letters that didn't survive that we don't have, um, because Paul refers to uh, writing uh, a letter to the church in this one, uh, so this would make that would make One Corinthians two, and then in chapter. In, sorry, in 2 Corinthians, he refers to another letter, an angry letter that he wrote. We don't have his angry letter either, so that's number three. Um, so, 1 Corinthians is really Paul speaking to a church in Greece, um, busy crossing point between east and west, north and south, uh, a trade route, uh, a commercial center, a place with the, all the kind of dubious history that any port city might have. Um, certainly before, about a, a, a hundred years before, this um, present version of Corinth was in existence, more than a hundred years. The, the city had been completely destroyed, but it had been an absolute um, uh, you know, dubious place, a center of uh, the god, a center of worship of the goddess uh, the, of, of um, fertility, and therefore uh, a place where temple prostitution was rife, and so on. So, a port city with everything that goes with a port city, it had been rebuilt and reestablished, 
but still a place with a, uh, an interesting cross-section of people and cultures, high and low, rich and poor, slave and free, uh, different languages, different cultural backgrounds. A melting pot like any major European city is like Glasgow is. That was really the reason for looking at Corinthians, because we are a gathered church in a, in a, a city that is multicultural and diverse and so on. So we've We've uh, covered a lot of ground over these weeks and months. Um, I want to say maybe a year, maybe longer. Um, and thinking about this church, this uh, assortment of individuals struggling to work out and the power of the Spirit, experiencing something of uh, the power of what God was doing in their midst with the uh, signs of the Holy Spirit, giving gifts and equipping them all in different ways, but yet how to do that with love. And we've seen that there were some practical considerations for the church along the way, how to carry on uh, being faithful to Jesus and yet in your place of employment, if your place of employment happens to have a pagan god or a shrine associated with it that requires you for the good of your career and to glad hand others and to schmooze your way up the, up the career ladder and get jobs and orders and all that kind of stuff. If you've got to turn up at a pagan temple and eat food dedicated to an idol, how are you supposed to do that with a clear conscience as a Christian? Um, so some practical workplace issues. There's a whole section going further back on, on sexual ethics because there was uh, somebody in the church who was uh, in, in living in blatant immorality, having a, an affair with his father's wife, and the church seemed to be applauding this, uh, and Paul's taking them to task on that. So we've covered a lot of ground over these weeks, and it's a church that has a tendency to split off into factions and groups. And actually, that's pretty much true of any gathered community. Churches uh, have a tendency, because they happen to be full of people, well, you hope they're full, but they've got people in them uh, who see things differently, who've got different backgrounds, different life experiences, and so on. And, and so people naturally and inevitably gravitate towards someone like me, uh, someone my age, someone with my background, and so on. And that's great, and that's fine. God sets the lonely in families, and He sets individuals in churches to relate and find friendships. But if we only do that, if the church only ever descends into cliques of folks who just hang out with those that they like, or they get on with, or they've got chemistry with, then we're selling short the power of the gospel. Because the theme, if there's one theme I see that's gone through the whole of this letter, it is Paul's challenge to a church that is diverse, very, very mixed, uh, could easily splinter off into little groups. It is the challenge to say the gospel is about calling the diversity of people in all of God's creation to a oneness of community, of, of family, and of relationship. Firstly, with God through, through faith in Jesus, and secondly, through relationship with one another that goes above and beyond the usual kind of distinctions that cause us to, uh, to, to um, hang out with one another or gravitate towards certain people. And Paul wants to remind this church, and most powerfully probably that last chapter that we looked at in, in chapter 15, reminding them that you're a people 
who are gathered around the resurrection. You're a people who have in common the fact that you believe that God has come to earth in the person of Jesus, and that He has lived perfectly on your behalf, the second Adam, so to speak, and that He's lived in perfect obedience, unlike any other human before the Father, and that He's taken upon Himself, uh, and Jesus acted it out in His own baptism, being baptized when He had no need to be into the murky, sin-riddled waters that all the people had gone into before. And Jesus was baptized and came up and, and thereafter referred to Himself no longer as Jesus of Nazareth, but as the Son of Man, as the one who was the representative of humankind, having taken, if you like, symbolically all of that sin on Himself, and then advancing the kingdom of God through signs and wonders all the way to the point where Jesus was crucified, died, and was raised to life. The most central preaching of the early church, the gospel, the good news, was that Jesus had been crucified for our sins and on the third day was raised to life. And that's what, if you're here today, you're here, I assume, I, well, I know because I know most of you, but I, I know that those of you who are here are here because you believe that. You believe the resurrection and that Jesus was raised to life and that because of that, the power of death is broken, and you can have hope through faith in Jesus. You can have forgiveness for your sins and your shame and your selfishness in Jesus. You can have the, the promise, as Paul was at pains to point out in the passage we looked at last week, of a, of a new life still to come, new bodies, a, a resurrection hope in the new heavens and a new earth where there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. So the promises are absolutely fantastic and exciting, and that's what gathers people from every tribe and nation and people and tongue, as we read in Revelation. I saw a vast multitude that no one could count. That's awesome. A vast multitude that no one could count from every tribe and nation and tongue all gathered as one people. And so it starts now. <laughs> the church is the place where it starts. The church is the place where that final picture of, of a beautiful new humankind gathered together, no longer with the distinctions and the divisions that keep us apart from one another. You know, all the trouble and strife in, in your world and my world, in the, the world as a whole, in our families, in our communities, generally comes where people divide from one another. The devil's one big strategy in, in decimating and attacking God's creation was to set people at odds with one another. It started with setting Adam and Eve at odds with God by disobeying, and so a division opened. Have you done what I commanded you not to do? And then on the back of that, a division between Adam and Eve themselves. Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat? The woman you put here with me, she did it. And so from being a team, the blame game starts. And the strategy is always to divide, to create reasons why you're different from me. 
and I'm better than you, or I don't talk to you, or I have nothing to do with you. God's vision, the good news of the gospel that is spelt out for us in that that psalm that we read. But let me just read some verses from Ephesians. I love these verses. I found them. I kind of read them for years, but not really paid all that much attention to what they were saying. Um, I'm sure we've all done that at times. You know, we read stuff and we think, yeah. And then there comes a day and we go, wow, I never saw that before. And something hits you that you'd never really noticed. So, So this is Ephesians chapter 1, where, God, uh, where Paul is describing what we have in Jesus. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, right? Drum roll, because here's the big climax for all of that. This is what it's all about. This is the mystery of his will, to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. That's the master plan, to bring everything together under Christ. We saw it a couple of weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 15, everything will be brought together. Those that have fallen asleep already died in their faith in Jesus. Those who are still alive when Jesus comes back, all brought together, one people, one family under Jesus. And then it says, then death gets destroyed forever, and all dominion and authority and everything that is opposed to that master plan and the rule and the reign of God. And then everything is handed over and is made subject to God. So, unity and overcoming barriers and divisions, that is the master plan. Now, sorry if I'm laboring the point, but that's the gospel in a nutshell. That's where the love and the service and the humility and the kindness and the grace and the forgiveness, all of the basic stuff of your discipleship and mine is about making sure we stay connected and that we don't allow anything to fester or grow. Grievances, grudges, divisions, hostility, we don't allow anything to grow. See that no bitter root grows up that would compromise or undermine the master plan, which is the church. Okay. So that works well or it can work well if the church is doing what it should within its own congregations, within its own gatherings. The big challenge, of course, the big challenge and the one that has tripped the body of Christ up time after time after time and still does is when it comes to congregations of the body of Christ. Because, see, we're not so good at loving our brothers and sisters if they worship somewhere else. If they're not in my church. Because, sadly, it can be a feature that, as a church, we lose sight of what the church is. This is not the church. It is part of the church. This 
is not the whole story. It's one little expression of the whole story. And the challenge for us as Christians, and probably the biggest challenge is for church leaders, if I'm honest, is to recognize that the body of Christ is expressed in many different ways, in many different places. Now, there are all sorts of challenges around that, challenges of, of theology and interpretation and, and differences that, that people have, we have as Christians with one another, and what do we do with that? And those are good and right and legitimate that we are able to talk with one another as long as that's what we do, and don't just rubbish one another. I remember, uh, was it Peter White? He used to be minister along at Sandyford Henderson Church in, in the West End. And I remember him describing how he had, you know, once heard somebody else chewing off a church or, or, a, or, a, or a church leader or just absolutely saying, they're just heretics, they're heathens. I don't know what, what, what was coming out. But as Peter said, you know, I'm not sure Jesus likes anyone talking about his bride like that. Not sure Jesus likes anyone talking about his bride like that. I remember hearing at a conference once uh, uh, something I'd never thought about, you know, the book of Revelation. It describes in the first chapter this vision that John has. I mean, it's a startling, frightening vision of Jesus, glorified, you know, hair like wool and eyes like fire and so on, a sharp sword coming out. It must have been a strange vision. But it describes, John describes for us in that vision how Jesus was walking amongst the lampstands, seven lampstands representing seven churches in the Asia Minor, what we know as Turkey, where John had some kind of oversight as a kind of bishop sort of person. Remember this guy, um, it was Nigel Cameron was his name, saying something which is brutally obvious. But he said, you know, Jesus was walking amongst those seven lampstands, and he was holding in his hand, you know, seven stars. He was holding those churches, and then he sent letters, messages to all of them, and some of them were doing horrendous stuff. So at least one of them he had not one good word to say about. And Jesus was walking amongst the lampstands. And Jesus was holding in his hand the stars representing those churches. And yeah, the threat was there. I might come and take your lampstand away. But the point was that Jesus was still bearing with that church for all its sin and its shortcoming and its disobedience and all the issues that he had with it. What has all that got to do with this thing on money, you may ask? Well, Paul is giving this church on the back of his uh, vision of, of the new life to come, new bodies, new creation, slowing off the old and, and being given new resurrection bodies where, as we saw last week, where the physical and the spiritual are, are beautifully uh, reintegrated. 
And we are given a, a, a spiritual life, a life, a body life that is like Jesus' resurrection life. So, power that we cannot conceive of an integration of just the fleshliness with the spiritual. We, we, we can't imagine. No, that's why Paul says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him, but He reveals it to us by His Spirit. So, we have glimpses. Do you have a glimpse? Do you have an excitement? Do you have a sense of much better yet to come? Because there is so much more yet to come. But then Paul brings them back down to earth and says, but while you're still here until that day comes, you have responsibilities. And you have responsibilities to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he starts off this, this four-verse section, and we're in the closing instructions here. So this is just Paul winding up the detail now. And this is just a little practical section at one level. Now, about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. Who are the Lord's people that he's referring to specifically? Well, a little further on, we know that he's talking about sending guys uh, who are approved by the church with their gift to Jerusalem. So, this is a gift for the church in Jerusalem. And so, before we even get to the level of, of money, Paul wants this church, and he wants us because he's written it down and it's come to us, to know that we are no church is a standalone. We're not a standalone. Okay, and a standalone mentality in the body of Christ can be a dangerous thing. You know, sadly, I have known situations where I can think of a situation in Edinburgh where a particular denomination um, went to plant a church in an area that was, as we say in Glasgow, hoaching with churches. <laughs> and yet, because there wasn't one that was branded with their logo or their style or whatever, the church had yet to come to that part of the city. Now, that's the most extreme example, I suppose, a mentality that says because our kind of church isn't there, the church isn't there. But you know, it, it, it's a dangerous mentality because it's a failure to recognize where Jesus is at work in other places. And so, Paul wants to remind this church, and, and a lot of these people will never have set foot in Jerusalem. They will probably not know much about the history of the spread of the gospel in Jerusalem. They won't perhaps really know that it all started in Jerusalem. They probably will, but maybe not the detail. And we know from the book of Acts that one of the things that the church did very early on and very quickly in response to the moving of the Holy Spirit was for them to share their material possessions with one another and support those who were in need. They gave to one another as they were in need. In another passage, we're told that, that people sold their possessions, and they came and laid at the apostles' feet what the proceeds of what they got. And we're told that 
in just a, a few chapters later on that there was a, a dispute between the, the Greek-speaking Jews and the Hebrew-speaking Hebraic Jews about the distribution of food for their widows. See, even already, those old divisions between Jews and non-Jews threatening to open up, and they were having a bit of a spat because the food for the provision of the widows in their midst wasn't, as they said, she's getting more than me. <laughs> or they get theirs first every time and all of that kind of stuff. And so Paul, uh, not Paul, sorry, Peter and the other apostles uh, appointed the seven, appointed deacons to make sure that it was, it was all fair to keep the unity of the church. And so this church in Jerusalem had dug deep, sold all it had, given everything at its disposal in order to advance the gospel and to serve the needs. And guess what? They ran out of money. <laughs> you can only do that for so long when your own resources are used up. But by now, of course, the gospel is spread to other places. And so there's a recognition that there's a mother church. <laughs> there's a mother church in Jerusalem that now needs the reverse support because it was their funding that sent out the other missionaries that funded the missions of Paul and Silas and Barnabas and, and others who traveled to share the gospel in the area. And yeah, Paul was a tent maker and he did a bit of work on the side when he, when he could. But by and large, they were getting supported from, from the mainstream or from, from the, the mother church, I should say. Now, That's the challenge that, that we still face. That principle, first of all, before we even get to kind of money or finance or anything like that, is the principle of mutual honoring. The principle of mutual honoring. It would be very easy to allow a culture of bitterness or antipathy or hostility to grow up in this church towards the Tron church. Okay, let me just put that out there. Because if you don't know the background of the circumstances, the Tron church was in this building, and they fell out with the Church of Scotland, big style. And they had to leave the building, and so ended up in Bath Street in, in, in premises up there. And it has not been an easy situation, okay? And so five years ago, this building had been closed for three months, and there was, there was no congregation, there was nothing going on here, it was, it was closed. And, and there was so much hurt. There was just so much pain, so much anger, and so much resentment about what had happened between, uh, because that congregation had spent a lot of money refurbing this building. I mean, we've tweaked it, but they spent big bucks. There was no basement before. This floor, the pews, everything taken out. The floor was taken up. They dug down into the basement. The place was completely refurbished. It cost three million pounds. And yet at the end of that, or towards the end of that time, when the uh, congregation fell out with the Church of Scotland, Ultimately, it meant they had to leave a building they did not own, even though they'd spent money refurbing it, and that hurts. You spent a lot of money, given sacrificially, and then you have to walk away. So I understand that. 
And so, yeah, there was anger and bitterness and, and all sorts of real difficulty. And there are still people around because somebody walked into the cafe two, three weeks ago, and I ended up having a conversation with them. And, oh my goodness, the pain and the anger was still a live thing for that person. And I just spent a little bit of time listening and chatting and really trying hard not to go down the road of taking sides or casting blame or saying, yeah, wasn't it terrible? Or don't worry, we hate them because Jesus doesn't want that. Jesus doesn't want that. You know, one of the things that I constantly want to challenge myself and you is that our responsibility before Jesus, and I have no personal history with, with that, with the other congregation, with, with the Tron Church congregation, but we have a responsibility to love and honor our brothers and sisters, to speak well of them, to understand that there was a painful situation, and yes, maybe there were some things that weren't right, but hey, anyone here got any stones they want to cast first? And so, when we read in Psalm 133 how good and how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity, and we read to the end of that psalm, for there the Lord bestows His blessing, even life forevermore. You know, that's what Jesus prayed for in John 17, that they may be brought to complete unity. And our challenge as Christians is to honor with our lips our brothers and sisters, even when, and I don't imagine that there is anybody here who has not been hurt by the church somewhere at some point. Because we're human and we're not perfect, we're on the way of, of redemption and of healing, but we still get it wrong. And so when Paul was writing to this church in Corinth, he was reminding them that they had a responsibility to honor those who had gone before. They had a responsibility to support and care for the church in other places, and that they had a practical responsibility to give in ways that would support it. Now, let me, let me just look at this from another angle. We are a Church of Scotland church. Now, I know, because I've been around long enough to know that the Church of Scotland can, for some people, let's be honest, be a bit of a joke. I've been in the Church of Scotland all my life, and I am aware, I am aware that the Church of Scotland is often looked upon as probably a bit like an aged relative, an elderly grandparent or great-grandparent, got to love them, got to be nice to them, got to be respectful, but really, they so need to get with today's world. Now, I'm saying that not out of unkindness, but out of understanding that the Church of Scotland is a denomination and institution that in many ways has, has got stuck with the, the older generation and struggles to find a way between staying faithful to some of its traditions and its history and its, for the sake of its people, and yet how to understand the fact that the world has changed massively in the last 30, 40, 50 years. 
and that where church as institution was once a given in society and people would grow up and they would go to Sunday school until they turned 16, then there would be confirmation, they would join the church, they, and so on, and it just, dum, 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 dum. that's what everybody did. Not anymore. And so it's no longer the case that people just trot into the church as institution anymore. We're now in a place where people have no reason, no social pressure, no expectation to be in a church unless they know Jesus and they're being compelled by the Holy Spirit to be part of the body of Christ. To which I say, amen, hallelujah. Because actually institutional pressure to conformity, to make people go to church and be bored Sunday after Sunday, and it means nothing to them, is just dead religion. Who wants that? Jesus doesn't, I believe. But you know, the Church of Scotland, and I'm not saying this because I'm a Church of Scotland minister. I think I would hope I would say this even if I wasn't. The Church of Scotland is, is, is seeking to... Uh, to change, to find new ways, to take risks and, and, and invest and find new ways of being different. And actually, God bless them for all they may be a great grandparent or grandparent denomination. I know that the Church of Scotland loves what is happening here. They love the fact that there's something new and different and that you guys are, let's just say, a nudge below the average age of your typical Church of Scotland congregation. And let's recognize that the Church of Scotland actually, for the last five years, has invested a ton of money. <laughs> they were owed £900,000 at the end of the debacle before, and they didn't come after it. They didn't come after this tiny little fledgling congregation saying, yeah, well, once you're up to speed, would you like to pay back the £900,000? They said, no, we're not coming after you for that. We want there to be life and a church here. We want you to have every possibility of flourishing here. So the church picks up the tab for my salary stipend so you guys don't have to. And the church through the Presbytery of Glasgow has just funded Luke's post as our events manager. You see, so I just want to say that because sometimes it can, the Church of Scotland can be a bit of an easy, an easy whipping boy. <laughs> It's easy to look at it and say, oh, dead and dying, nothing going on there. Well, in some congregations that are small and dwindling, that's maybe true. But you see, Paul wanted there to be a collection for a church that was now impoverished, that was a mother church, to honor and respect. Every church in the Church of Scotland gets um, assessed for how much it can afford to give to support the work that the Church of Scotland does. And, and they've laid off us. This year, I think we've got our first um, bill in. So that's a good sign, actually. <laughs> I think it's something modest, like 1,500 pounds or 1,800 pounds over the year. Because they want to be gentle with us, because they know we're just starting out, and they know that, you know, we don't have a lot of money. And so I want to invite you, and I know, I, I don't imagine... Any, many of you gather here because it's the Church of Scotland and that's where I go. You come because this is either a community that you're checking out or you're part of already or this is your family and where God has brought you and that's fantastic. But whether it's how we speak of our brothers and sisters in Christ in other churches, 
how we learn to forgive and show grace so that we work at preserving the unity of the body of Christ, or it's how we give our resources to honor and recognize. You know, what is it, the fifth commandment? I can never, I wish, a better memory for the number of the commandments. Honor your father and mother that it may go well with you. The Jerusalem church was the mother of the Corinthian church. And this was a collection to honor and look after the church that God had chosen to send out the witness. This was a collection to help this congregation uh, that was in Jerusalem and that had borne the burden of the start, having the resources that were needed. And so from a season of plenty, they'd gone to a season of want in Jerusalem. And I suppose that's equally true of of the, the Church of Scotland or many of our institutional denominations because it's the same in the Roman Catholic Church. It's to some extent, it's the same in the Episcopal Church. In the Methodist church, the institutional denominations are, are, are struggling in many ways. And yet, over against that, they often are the ones who, in the wee hamlets of Scotland, where there's nothing else and you don't have a dozen independent churches jostling for numbers, but you've maybe got one wee church. <laughs> and those people need to know about Jesus too. And those people need to have the opportunity of hearing the gospel of Jesus too. And so when we give to the denomination, we give to Jesus, because any time I give to, to, to anything in Jesus' name, I just say, Jesus, I'm giving that to you. And I have to take my hands off it. And not everything that the Church of Scotland does, believes, or stands for, particularly in recent years, I personally agree with theologically. But God called me into the Church of Scotland, and God hasn't called me out of the Church of Scotland. And so, what that all means for you is none of my business. It's between you and Jesus. Whether it means for you that you have to actually repent and ask forgiveness for attitudes in your heart, towards other congregations or denominations or or Christians. It means that all of us need to make sure that we divest ourselves all the time of a silo mentality that says building an empire here is what's important. It's not. What's important is seeing the kingdom advance. If people come to Jesus through the Kathy ministry here and they end up worshiping somewhere else because that makes sense for them, hallelujah. We do not need everybody that has an encounter with Jesus to stay here. But we do want to see the kingdom advance. And we do want to see the people of God grow. And we do want to see the church being blessed and grown and honored and supported. And so when we ask you to give, as Paul was asking the church, some of what you give keeps these expensive lights on. And we're trying to change them so they're less expensive. Do you know how we're going to change them so they're less expensive? We're asking the Church of Scotland for a grant. (laughs) And they will probably help us to change the expensive light fittings, which peppercorn the ceiling, for cheaper ones, which cost pennies and not thousands to run. So, as much as this looks like a listed building in the middle of the city center that the council or the authorities or other people ought to be paying for... (laughs) 
Every church is a responsibility of its own community. And so when we ask you to give and to fulfill your commitment to serving Jesus with all that you are and have, it's for those reasons. It's for the reasons of playing your part in honoring the community that God's called you to and supporting its life and ministry. And it's so that we can also give back to those who have been generous, our parents and grandparents. I asked you to think earlier on about churches that hold a special place in your heart. And I don't know how it is with those churches now. Maybe they're down to half a dozen pensioners. Because many churches are, let's be real. But they were the ones who nurtured you and sent you on your way. We are a new generation, and we have a responsibility and a calling to carry the torch, to fly the flag, use whatever metaphor you want, but to proclaim Jesus for this and the next generation. We have a responsibility to preserve the unity of the body of Christ with people you like and people that you maybe don't gravitate towards naturally. And we have a responsibility to honor and bless those who are poorer and more vulnerable than we are. And that may not be denominational. That might be because we're committed to supporting the work of, of Tear Fund or the International Justice Mission. Paul was aware of the practice of, of the needs of the other churches, and, and he gave them a simple practice. And it's a first fruits practice. He says, on the first day of every week, set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. So no heavy uh, threatening about it's got to be tithes and it's, is it net or gross? I don't know. You know what you earn. You know what comes in. You know what your outgoings are. I've thrown the Starbucks challenge at you before now. <laughs> how much is your Starbucks bill each week? And how does it compare with your honoring of God? He said, you know what you earn, and you decide what is appropriate as a response so that the gospel of the kingdom of grace, the unifying force that is leading all the faithful people of God to the day when Jesus will come again, and there will be no more money, and there will be no more need, and there will be no hunger or want, because we will all be one people perfectly united with God and each other in a place where there will be no want and no need. And so Paul urges them to be responsible in what they do and how they do it, to be responsible in recognizing that they are part of a much bigger thing and not just their own uh, little cluster. And then Paul asks them to decide who are the guys you're going to entrust, because some people were going to get the job of carrying this money and bearing it all the way to Jerusalem. There's a man that many of you don't uh, know because he tends to worship at the At Five service and the midweek service, but his name is David Young, who is our treasurer. David is a lovely, wonderful man who, can you imagine what sorting out finances has been like over the years? You know, every charity has to put in an Oscar return. Um, and so, hallelujah, we just managed to get enough information together, wait for this, to put in the 2011 Oscar return. Yes, 2011 is lodged. So now we're working on 2012. We don't have a lot of the facts and information because that predates us being here, but that return isn't in. 
And David, bless him, stepped up to the plate, and he has been working to pull numbers together and work his magic with other people so that we can be fiscally squeaky clean. And that's an ongoing challenge. So he's like the men Paul is referring to. He's the one who God has called and entrusted. So, you know, pray for David. <laughs> if you know David, bless him. Say thank you. Buy him a coffee. <laughs> and Paul said, and if it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. I love that. He doesn't say I will accompany them. He says they will accompany me. Going off to Jerusalem to bless the mother church and to honor the breadth of the church as an expression of the unity of the kingdom and to meet the needs of others who've gone before because it was because they went before that the church in Corinth is even there at all. So, I think I've run over your challenges. Examine your heart. Examine your attitudes towards other Christians, towards churches or congregations that may have hurt you, towards other denominations that may just seem laughable, towards people you fundamentally disagree with because of decisions that they've made and a theology they've embraced that you can't agree with, and you don't have to agree with it. But we can recognize what we do have in common. And if we call Jesus Savior and Lord, if in the fundamentals we are agreed, then it's not for us to make decisions about who's in and who's out. Our responsibility is to do all we can to demonstrate a sign of the oneness that Jesus died for out of all his people. Let's pray together.